0: Our passage, you can see it on page 8, is in Exodus 24. We're continuing to make our way through the series in Exodus. And this morning's passage is both literally and figuratively the high point of the book of Exodus so far. It's literally the high point of the book because our passage concludes with Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. Uh, He climbs to the very top of the mountain of God and is in the presence of the glory of the living God. And so it really is a true mountaintop experience for Moses. As we'll see, he experiences the presence of the living God in a way that no one else has up to this point at the top of this mountain. So literally, uh, in that way, it's the high point of the book of Exodus. Uh, But it's also the high point of the story so far in a deeper and more figurative sense maybe, because this is the destination that the narrative has been driving towards this whole time. This moment, Exodus 24, is the moment we've all been waiting for. It's the goal that God has been driving towards, that God has had in mind. It's the climax, the apex of the story. It's the crescendo, because this is the moment when God is going to enter into solemn covenant with the people that he rescued and brought out of slavery. It started with Abraham, with an old man that was too old to even have children, and he promised that this moment would come. And ever since those early chapters in the book of Genesis, God has been at work through the mess of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's life, through the tragedy of Joseph's life, through the painful waiting of 400 years of Israel and slavery in Egypt. He's been at work through all of it to get to this point. And now they're going to seal the deal. Now they're going to say, I do, to each other and enter into covenant relationship where God makes promises and Israel makes promises and they confirm with one another that God's going to be their God and they're going to be His people. It really is a a true kind of before and after moment in the grand story of redemption, this moment of relationship between God and His people. What happens here in Exodus 24 is the high point of the story, a story that started a long time ago, and it's all been driving towards this, and yet, and yet what I hope you'll see this morning is that this high point of the story, this climactic mountain type, mountaintop kind of experience, it actually turns out to be just a preview, a foreshadowing, a taste, a hint of something greater that's to come. What happens below the, the mountain, what happens in halfway up the mountain, and what happens at the top of the mountain in our passage this morning turns out to just be a foreshadowing of the real high point in the grand story of redemption that this is pointing to. Let's see how that's true. Exodus chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. This is God's Word. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy of the el- and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and the people answered with one voice and said, "All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do." And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, "'Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, "'that I might give you the tablets of stone "'with the law and the commandment "'which I have written for their instruction.' So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, "'Wait here for us until we return to you, "'and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. "'Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them.' Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days And 40 nights. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would now come and open the eyes of our hearts by your Spirit, that we might see you, and that in seeing you, we might love and trust you in new and fresh ways, either for the first time or for the 10,000th time this morning. We pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. So, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but this is a mountain climbing passage. Exodus 24 gains a lot of altitude above sea level, the more that you read this passage from start to finish. Notice it begins at the foot of the mountain, and it tells us about something that happens there at the foot, and then the passage proceeds halfway up the mountain and tells us about something that happens there, and then the passage concludes at the top of the mountain. And it tells us something that happens there. And so as we read, we are literally climbing the mountain of God with Moses. Seven times in this passage, you have the the word for coming up or for going up. That's what this passage is about. And we see some really important events that take place as we climb this mountain with Moses. But what I hope we'll see is that what happens at each of these three stops along the way, at the bottom and then halfway up and then at the very top, all of these important things that take place are actually all just previews, pointers, foreshadowing of something that's new of something that's greater and better that's yet to come. They are all high points in the story of redemption so far, but in the big picture they're just shadows, previews of something and someone better. And so that's how we'll shape our sermon this passage, since there are three points along the climb that we, see, that, we, that we climb with Moses, three points to the sermon, and here they are. Number one, I want us to see a marriage at the foot of the mountain that points to another better marriage. And then secondly, a meal halfway up the mountain that points to another and better meal. And then third, a mediator at the top of the mountain that points to another and better mediator. <clears throat> so let's climb. let's climb with Moses. From the bottom to the top. As we do, we see that, or the the first stop we come to is a marriage. A marriage at the foot of the mountain here that points to another, better marriage. Now you might hear me say that first point and think, now wait a minute, I don't see a marriage here. I don't see any language about husband and wife and matrimony or anything like that. What do you mean a marriage at the foot of the mountain? All right, well good question. Let me explain. What's happening here in verses 3 through 8 is a covenant ratification ceremony, okay? So scholars all across the board agree that what's happening here with the reading of the law and the questions and answers, uh, the sacrifices, the the blood that's sprinkled on the people and on the altar, all of this has all of the marks of an ancient Near Eastern treaty confirmation or a covenant ratification ceremony. Back in the ancient Near East, back in this culture, when two parties wanted to enter into a, series, into a serious agreement of some kind, what they would do is they would go through motions exactly like this. Whether it was two individuals or whether it was two representatives from two whole countries, what they would do if they wanted to enter into a binding, serious, permanent agreement of some kind is they would make a covenant, a treaty, and they would go through these motions... To signify to each other and to the watching world, this is what we're agreeing to, and this is how serious we are about it. And so this is a covenant ratification ceremony. Notice in verse 7, Moses, he de- it doesn't say that he just reads the, the law, it, it says he reads the book of the covenant. And then in verse 8, notice Moses doesn't just sprinkle blood on the people, he sprinkles what? The blood of the covenant. God and his people are coming together here to formally, officially, permanently commit to each other, to enter into solemn covenant with each other that God will be their God and that they will be his people. The people take solemn vows in the form of these questions and answers. Notice that Moses, he reads the whole book of the covenant which we've actually been going through the last few weeks here. It's Exodus chapter 20, 21, 22, and 23. That's the book of the covenant that Moses reads here. And he basically says, do you? And the people say, we do. And after saying their vows, notice that Moses performs this symbolic gesture of throwing the blood of the covenant on the people of Israel. He gets them bloody. And this blood was a symbol that represents the weightiness of, of their vows, the seriousness of the solemn agreement that they're entering into. What they're saying is, they're, is they're saying, if, if we break our vow, may we be cut into pieces like the animal that was cut into pieces and produced this blood. And may our blood be spilt just like this blood was spilt if we're ever untrue or unfaithful. To the terms of this covenant. As a side note, it's really interesting that in the Hebrew language all over the Old Testament, there is no language for to make a covenant. You don't see that. What you see is language for cutting a covenant. So the language literally reads, it, it doesn't say to make a covenant, they literally cut a covenant with each other. Referring to this process, we, we see it earlier in, in the book of Genesis where they would either cut an animal in half, literally cut it in two, and the two parties, or one party in the case of what happens in Genesis, would walk through the pieces. Or, since two million people probably couldn't do that together in this ceremony here, they take that blood and they sprinkle it on the people, signifying, that this is a real life and death matter. It's serious. In other words, they're communicating, till death do us part, And if something other than death makes us part from one another, then we deserve death. And that's what we'll get. So look, get this. God and Israel, they're in a covenant ratification ceremony here. And just watch the the different pieces here. Moses is functioning as the ceremony officiant, okay? He's standing there before the two parties. And where are they? They're before an altar that Moses builds. And what do they do before the altar? They take vows with one another. And then what do they do after exchanging vows? Well, they receive a symbol, the blood of the covenant that communicates, this is my token and pledge of constant faith and abiding love till death do us part. Does that sound familiar? It's a marriage ceremony. It's a marriage ceremony. God and Israel are meeting here at the foot of this mountain at the altar to commit to one another, making solemn vows, a solemn covenant to love and to cherish one another, to be faithful, to love one another in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, in joy and in sorrow, till death do us part. That's what's happening here. And just in case you think I'm taking this too far, reading into it, there's language all over the New Testament that describes God's saving covenantal relationship with his people in these very terms, in the terms of marriage. It's all over the place. Isaiah 54, verse 5, where it says, Your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 62, verse 5, As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. It really is all over the place, but you know, the... the, The people that that use this language the most are the Old Testament prophets who look back specifically to this moment in Exodus 24 and they see a marriage taking place between God and his people. I could read like 15 different passages here, but I want to just read two. Notice Jeremiah 31, a very familiar passage. We've already read parts of Jeremiah 31 already in our service this morning, but listen to what Jeremiah says. He says, behold, or God is saying here in in Jeremiah 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. In other words, this moment here. My covenant that they broke, although I was their husband, declares the Lord. So there's... There's God in Jeremiah 31 referring to this moment, this covenant ratification in terms of the moment that he became their husband. Then Ezekiel 16, just a warning. This is one of those fascinating R-rated kinds of passages in the Old Testament that graphically recounts the relationship between God and his people in terms of a love story between a husband and a wife. And the marriage, the marriage it starts out well, but it goes south pretty quickly. Uh, but the way that Ezekiel describes this marriage, this love story, <laughs> look, it's kind of edge of your seat, like it's not boring and dry and dull, but it, it's this heart-pounding kind of love story about a man that falls deeply in love with a woman that he finds incredibly, irresistibly beautiful. And God says there to Israel, he's recounting this, and he says, I, I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, but you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And so I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into covenant with you, and you became mine. It's fascinating language where God is recounting the love story that quickly goes south after that moment in terms of God giving himself to his people in marriage. The Old Testament looks back at this moment, and and it sees a marriage at the foot of the mountain. But here's the thing. This is a marriage that points forward to another and better marriage because it's evident from the beginning, from the second that these two parties say, I do here, that this marriage was always meant to prepare God's people for something better, for something that was to come. It was meant to whet their appetites, to stir their imaginations, and to make them yearn for another wedding day that was to come. Because look, the way that this marriage starts off, it can't last this way forever. It was never meant to remain this way forever. Here's God at the top of the mountain and his bride at the bottom of the mountain and notice they can't even get to each other. <laughs> like she can't even come up to him. He's holy and pure and righteous and dwelling in the glory of the Lord at the top of the mountain and the the groom has to say don't even touch the mountain where I am because you'll die. Because you're not holy and you're not righteous and you're not pure like me. So notice that there's a distance from the beginning. There's this unbridgeable gap between husband and wife here that shows that this marriage was always meant to give way to something better at some point. If you've ever been in a long-distance relationship, you know that it's just not, it's not that fun, right? Um, and it's not that easy. You get tired of the distance really fast, right? Like, if you really deeply love somebody, um, you don't get into a long-distance relationship with them, and you're like, yeah, let's just stay this way forever. I prefer the distance. It's fun not to see each other and touch each other and, like, be with each other. Let's just keep this distance forever. Nobody says that if they actually really love each other, because if you love each other, you want to be with each other. Well, here, this marriage begins as a really long distance relationship from the very beginning. Really long distance. Because the distance between the bride's, the bride's sin and the groom's holiness is the longest distance you can imagine. And left up to us, left up to the bride, we just keep making this distance even greater, don't we? Just go back and read that chapter in Ezekiel 16 to see how God really sees and feel what he really feels about our sin. Because when we see our relationship in terms of marriage, God doesn't see our sin as just messing up, as just a little mistake here and there, as just a small missing of the mark. He sees it as infidelity, as unfaithfulness. As throwing off your wedding ring and climbing in bed with someone else to commit spiritual adultery. That's the language that God uses. Because our unfaithfulness is marriage covenant unfaithfulness. It's that serious. That's the distance between the bride and the groom that we see here. And it's a distance that the bride cannot cross. And the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is that the bridegroom loves you and me so much. His love is so steadfast and committed that he's the one that crosses the distance, created by our sin, and he receives the death penalty that we deserve for breaking our covenant vows. Ephesians 5, Paul writes this, Christ loved the church And gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So that she might be holy and without blemish. What happens when the bride is holy and without blemish? She can be with the bridegroom. Who is holy and without blemish. Y'all, that is the marriage that this marriage here at the foot of this mountain is pointing towards and foreshadowing. It's a marriage that is both not yet and that's already. Because as John says in the New Testament, the bridegroom has come. He's come down the mountain to his bride. Like we've already sung this morning, from heaven he came and sought her. He's bridged the gap that we created with his own blood, the blood of the new covenant, like he says himself, the new covenant that's made in my blood. So we see here at the foot of a mountain a marriage that points forward to another and better marriage. We see secondly here a meal halfway up the mountain that points to another and a better meal. Y'all, this next section here, Verses 11 and 10, or verses 9, 10, and 11 is just absolutely incredible. Okay, buckle up and let's read it again. Verse 9, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Y'all, that's amazing. This passage and what it's clearly saying, like it was, it's actually so amazing that the first translators of the Hebrew Bible, thousands of years ago when they were translating it from the Hebrew into the Greek, it made them so nervous that they blatantly changed the wording here. Because they thought there's no way they actually saw God. And, the, and, it, and they made it say in the Greek something to the effect of they saw the place where God was. This language made them so nervous. The idea of, of these men, Moses and the representatives of Israel, climbing halfway up the mountain. And like it says clearly here, seeing God and beholding God. But notice... That's what it says. It made them so nervous, those, those first translators, that they thought there's no way that could be true, though, because in a, in a few chapters, Moses himself is going to say that no man can see God and live. And yet here the text plainly says, twice, that God invites Moses and the representatives up, and they see God. What do we do with this? Well, here's how I think Moses is describing the incredible experience that they have here. The God of heaven has descended onto the mountain, okay? The throne room of heaven itself has, like a helicopter, come down and landed on the top of the mountain. And Moses and these elders are invited halfway up the mountain and it's like they reach this point on their climb where they're going from heaven or, or from earth into heaven, and they reach the point where they get close enough where they can see from below through the, floor, the, the, through the floor of the throne room of heaven and into heaven itself, okay? So I think the way that Moses is describing this is he's, it's as if they come up and they can see through the floor from below and see what's above because notice they describe the floor you you get the sense they're having a really hard time putting this into words right because it says the floor was as it were a pavement of sapphire stone they they're having a really hard time putting into words what they saw it's as if they're looking up from earth into heaven itself because heaven has come down and landed and look, I, I would not argue with Moses if he wanted to give us a little more information here, a few more details, that would have been fine. But notice that they, just, they don't even get past the description of what they saw, of the floor and the feet. They just stop there. It's as if the sight of just the floor, just the pavement of heaven itself, and the feet of the one who's sitting on the throne, it, It knocks them down to the ground and it buckles their knees and they fall flat on their faces just like the disciples would a few thousand years when they fall on their faces terrified in the presence of Jesus. Well, same thing here. They don't even get past seeing the floor and God's feet. God gives them just the smallest glimpse of heaven and of the king of heaven. And they can't even pick up their faces off the ground because they're bowed down in reverence and awe and worship. And then we're told something really fascinating. As if seeing God wasn't enough, it says they sit down and eat together. That last little detail is so amazing in verse 11 that this whole experience ends with them having a picnic. Halfway up the mountain... Sharing a meal together. And look, don't miss this. The astounding implication is that they're eating with God. We're not told anything further. We don't know what the menu is. We don't know if they made it any further up into the throne room of heaven itself that's come down to land. We're just told that they eat and drink with God. And look, here's the thing. This is actually exactly what you would expect because in the ancient Near East, after two parties have come together in a solemn covenant with each other, the next thing they would do is sit down and eat a meal together. They're following the script. This is exactly what we expect because sitting down to eat a meal with someone after formalizing the covenant with the other party, it symbolized fellowship and agreement, and harmony, and friendship. It meant intimacy. God eats a meal with the representatives of Israel here to communicate that the covenant that they just made together really brings about intimacy, fellowship, and deep friendship with God and His people. It's a meal halfway up the mountain, but notice, as amazing as it is, it's still a meal that points to another and better meal. Because notice, the fact that they're not dead right now as they eat this meal in God's immediate presence is a huge exception to the rule that God is making. I mean, the only reason that they're not melted away as they eat this meal halfway up the mountain is that, quote, God did not lay his hand on them. He surrounds them with His mercy so that His holiness doesn't melt them away. In other words, as they eat this meal of fellowship and communion and friendship, they're still not safe. They're still not at home in the presence of the God that they have just made covenant with. And notice something else. Notice who's eating the meal. It's just the representatives of Israel who are on the the invite list. Nobody else is invited. All the rest of the people are still at the bottom of the mountain. Your average, everyday, ordinary Israelites aren't there. There's only 70 representatives that are representing around 2 million Israelites. And look, I did the math here. Um, That means that it's .0035% of the people of Israel are actually up on this mountain having this covenant meal with God. You know what that means? It means that chances are, you and I, if we we were there too on that day, we would not have been on the invite list. We would not have been eating this meal. Your average, ordinary, everyday people of God. But the good news of the gospel is that God never intended it to stay like that. That this meal points to another and better meal. A meal of fellowship and friendship with God when you are finally safe in His presence and at home with Him because your guilt has been removed and dealt with forever. A meal where you don't just see the feet of your host and fall down flat, but a meal where you can see His face and see His smile. And feel his delight and pleasure that you're sitting at the table with him in real intimate friendship. And it's a meal where you're invited. A meal where you have a place at the table. Not someone that's there in your your proxy as your representative. But all of God's ordinary, everyday, average people like you and me sitting at the table. In Revelation 19, this supper, this meal is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's the way that eternity begins for the people of God, with a marriage supper. And notice, notice that it's not called, though, the marriage supper of the bridegroom. You might expect that, but it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb because the groom had to become a Lamb to make it safe for you to be forever in the presence of God in intimate fellowship and friendship. And Revelation 19 says blessed are all who are invited. Have you taken him up on that invitation yet? This is a meal halfway up the mountain that points to another and a better meal. Thirdly and lastly we've seen a We've seen a marriage at the bottom of the mountain that points to another and a better marriage. We've climbed halfway up the mountain and we see a meal halfway up that points to another and a better meal. But finally and lastly, we see here at the top of the mountain a mediator who points to another and a better mediator. Our passage ends with Moses as the mediator of God's people climbing to the top of the mountain, invited as astounding as it is into the very glory of the Lord that's descended onto the top of the mountain. Verse 16 says that the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. When it says that the glory of the Lord dwelt there on the top of the mountain, that's the Hebrew word where we get the phrase the Shekinah glory of God. Have you ever heard that phrase before? The Shekinah glory, the glory cloud. Um, it's the glory cloud of God, the raw, unfiltered majesty and presence of the holy, living God that surrounds Him and radiates outward and also protects and shields the eyes of anyone from seeing who's inside. The Shekinah glory of God that dwells on the mountain. And verse 18 says that Moses entered that cloud and went up on the mountain. So here it is. This is the high point of the book of Exodus, both literally and figuratively. A mediator from the people enters into the glorious presence of God, where God dwells in heaven that has descended to earth. And why does he ascend in order to receive, we're told, the law, the commandments that are written on stone. Someone goes up from the people to represent us and to receive the law of God on tablets of stone, to receive instructions for how to build the tabernacle. That's what's going to take up the rest of the book of Exodus. But what I want us to see here, though, is that this mediator at the top of this mountain points to another and a better mediator because here a man goes up from the people to God but in Jesus God comes down himself as a man to dwell with his people here a mediator climbs up into heaven into the glory cloud of God into the Shekinah glory of the one true and living God that has Literally dwelling on the mountain where no one else is invited to go. But in Jesus, a mediator comes down from heaven, he who is the glory of God himself. And he comes, John 1 says, to become flesh and to dwell among us. Literally, for the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, to come and dwell not at the top of the mountain, but with his people. And John says that we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here, a mediator comes to God to receive a law written on stone, and it's a law that you and I can't keep or obey. But the good news of the gospel is that a mediator comes from God to receive, to not, not just to receive that law, but to keep it, to obey it perfectly, and to send his spirit to write it on our hearts. This mediator points to another and a better mediator who did all that for you, who loves you like his bride. And you get the sense when he's eating that last supper with his disciples that he can't wait to eat that next meal with you and me. And the whole story ends like this. Revelation 21. And then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God. Where is it now? It's with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Brothers and sisters and friends, may what we see here at the bottom of this mountain, and halfway up and at the top, point us to the God who has become man to dwell with us the God who's taking us all the way home and who loves you as his bride right now. There's not a square inch of your life that remains unchanged, untransformed, or unaffected by a love like that that never lets you go. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would fill our hearts with love and affection for the God who loves us with such steadfast, committed love. We pray, Lord Jesus, that either for the first time or for the 10,000th time, you would melt our hearts in gratitude and wonder and praise at the one who came from glory, from the top of the mountain, to dwell with us at the bottom, to bring us up into heaven and to prepare a place for us so that we might dwell with God forever. Lord Jesus, we pray that both today and for the rest of our lives, that we would never get bored with that, that that would never cease to amaze us. Drill that gospel, that good news, further down into our hearts so that we might love you and trust you in new and fresh ways. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.